Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 15th, 2013. <laughs> I just have to laugh about this program. <clears throat> Every now and then, I, you know, after putting the episode together and you get all the moving parts, you know, buttoned down, you realize what you're dealing with and you <laughs> just. <sighs> you want to groan and. Make sad, weird faces. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Okay, <clears throat> I'm... I'm going to skip the monologue today because we've got quite a bit of ground that we need to cover today. And I, in all of the different pieces kind of all work together, at least I think they do. And uh, I, I should tell you, if you're new to listening to Fighting for the Faith, one of the things I strive to do, unless I tell you otherwise, is that every episode of Fighting for the Faith has a unified theme to it. Now, I don't necessarily always tell you what the theme is. Sometimes I like you to try to figure it out. And that could be you know, one of the fun things that you can do while listening to Fighting for the Faith, going, wonder what, wonder what the theme was. Today has a theme, and it's not going to be hard to figure out the theme. But anyway, um, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And segment number one, I have entitled, although this is not the only aspect of this that we're going to be covering, but I've, I've named segment number one for today's program, Should Christians Believe in Stoning Prostitutes? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, the reason, just let me give you a little bit of backstory, okay? Somebody, um, a listener, happened to put on my Facebook wall a link to a video. Uh, from a gentleman I have never seen on television, and you got to understand something. I so rarely watch television that um, you know that I don't really know who the mo the popular commentators and things like that you know news people are. I I just don't have time, and so in fact, I <laughs> nothing personal, but I have found that 
I'm a much happier person when I don't watch the evening news every night. And if I, and I find that I'm much happier not getting caught up in all of the drama in the political world and all that kind of stuff. You know, for me, news is who, which sports teams that I follow uh, won or lost last night or last week. Um, and what's the weather going to be? Now, I know that seems like <laughs> maybe I'm shirking some kind of civic responsibility here, but the 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 reality is is that preparing for this program and the theological work and the other you know schoolwork and things like that, I just I just don't have time, and so I you know I don't know who this person is, but somebody put a link up to a a video uh, by an MSNBC commentator by the name of Lawrence O'Donnell. And um, the screenshot is just, you know, absolutely priceless in the worst way. But um, he, he claims to know a thing or two about the Bible, and it's clear by what he says that he, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing with the Bible. And so he makes some very interesting claims in this particular thing. And, of course, he's commenting on the Louis Giglio thing and um and i guess msnbc is like a way liberal outfit and so he's quoting the standard liberal line and the things that he says are so bad that i mean it makes me wonder i mean where did this guy learn these arguments from because they're horrible and so the the segment i've named it should christians believe in stoning prostitutes but we're going to take a look at two little things that this uh, guy, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, said in his um, TV commentary <laughs> that show that he don't know what he's doing. But the other thing is this, is that <clears throat> if you're out there, you know, having conversations with coworkers and family members who are not Christian, they, having watched uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, might, you know, at you know, the next family gathering, you know, th- throw these things at you as if somehow they, these are decisive zingers that are going to shut you down and and cause you to put your tail between your legs as a Christian and scamper away and in shame and stuff like that. And and don't don't scamper away and shake. What I'm hopefully going to be able to show you is is that um, these are not even remotely difficult arguments to overcome. If as long as you understand what's you know what the right answer is, so we'll take a look at that. Um, then we're going to flip over to Fox News. <laughs> you know, we're going to go from MSNBC to Fox News. Why do I? But uh, there's this great little segment that was done on a uh, program over at uh, Fox News. A little segment, and I don't even know the name of the television show, um, but. Um, Somebody commenting on that narcissism, uh, you know, American freshman survey regarding narcissism. And the name of the headline for the piece is, is uh, we are raising a generation of deluded narcissists. And to which I say, yes, we are. And of all places, you know, I, I see this, you know, the most is in churches that call themselves Christian churches. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you. Now, one of the claims that I've made here at Fighting for the Faith is that um, I'm convinced that the seeker-driven preaching, seeker-driven preaching is a light, watered-down version of the word of faith heresy, okay? 
And you know, I've I've made this claim for a long time. In fact, I've been I haven't really kind of accentuated that recently. But it's something that I've you know, claimed over the years is that when you listen to you know the Rick Warrens, the Hybels, the Perry Nobles, the Stephen Furtick's, all these guys, they sound so similar to me to the Word of Faith heretics. You know, you'd think Joel Osteen and others, um, T.D. Jakes and others, that, um, that you know, it's a light version of that. Well, on Oprah's Life class, Rick Warren made a statement that sounds ridiculously similar to the same kind of statements that uh, that uh, Joel Osteen made when he was on Oprah's Life class. So we're going to, I'm going to play that for you and then we'll take our, you know, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to uh, do part two of Rick Warren's losing poker hand on Oprah's Life class. So that little teaser that we're going to do before the break is not the actual, but is not the actual Rick Warren update. So just keep that in mind, but I wanted to bring that out and, Put it in the program right after the are we are raising a generation of deluded narcissists segment. So, yeah, and then for our number two, <laughs> oh man, we're going back down to Ignite Church in Joplin, Missouri. By by the way, listen, that's like a horrible name for a church, Ignite Church, because it brings in my mind it conjures up flames and flames <laughs> remind me of hell. So. <laughs> just you know it's a horrible name for a church but anyway we're going to be going back down to Joplin Missouri to ignite church and we're going to listen to a a sermon about chasing lions i mean i mean how far behind is this guy i mean it, batterson's book on you know in a, in a pit with a lion on a snowy day i mean that thing is got to be 6 or 7 years old and and in you know in seeker driven world i mean that might as well be 100 years old but anyway so we'll be uh we'll be going down to Joplin and listening <laughs> to one of the most ridiculous sermons i've heard in a while so anyway that's what we're going to be doing on today's edition of fighting for the faith i strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable fuzzy bunny slippers if you have them now if you i haven't i haven't plugged the funny bu- fuzzy bunny slippers in a while but i got to tell you Okay, since all those seeker driven guys, okay, they're all about the worship experience. You know, I've long ago made the decision here that, you know, I, I got to be concerned about my listeners and their their listening experience. And so did some experimenting and I found, okay, of all things, I mean, you wouldn't expect this, but you can enhance your listener experience because it's all about the experience. You can enhance your listener experience while listening to Fighting for the Faith if you don a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers. Now I've tried this personally and experimented with it. And I found that it's absolutely true that fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience with one caveat. Okay. And so I got to warn you. Okay. Right now here in the United States, it's winter. Okay. So uh, this is a perfect time to be wearing fuzzy bunny slippers, but we have listeners in Australia, New Zealand, and South a- and South Africa, and it's summer there right now. And so, what I've found is is that if you wear fuzzy bunny slippers while listening to Fighting for the Faith, when it's warm in your home, it actually causes your feet to sweat, and then it actually detracts from your listener experience. So, <clears throat> listener experiences being as important as they are, I just wanted to let you know that you can actually enhance the listener experience. By donning a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, which is the reason why if you visit fightingforthefaith.com and you scroll down on the left-hand side of our homepage, you will see that there are links to and photographs of 
fuzzy bunny slippers that you can purchase to help you enhance your listener experience. Yeah, from time to time, I can't believe I haven't talked about this recently. Anyway, so with that, we're going to uh, dive into our program proper, and with that, we got to do this. So does the Bible need a rewrite? Well, according to um, Lawrence O'Donnell of <clears throat> MSNBC, apparently the Bible needs to be rewritten. And so I've named this segment, by the way, is Should Christians Believe in Stoning Prostitutes? Okay. Now, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm not going to actually play the stoning prostitutes bit. I'm going to play for you a portion of uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's commentary from MSNBC from last week regarding the Louis Giglio flap, where he says, basically, he's commenting on the sermon that surfaced from Louis Giglio, where Louis Giglio was pointing out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it talks about, you know, homosexuals not inheriting the kingdom of God. This is what it says. And so Lawrence O'Donnell he decided to weigh in on this, and he considered what Louis Giglio said you know, regarding homosexuals to be off the mark and not accurate. And here was his argument. Now, I heard that, and I didn't think the word homosexual appeared in the Bible. And so I checked it today. Where he says the word homosexual, the Bible actually uses the word effeminate. Now, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> Oh, the Bible doesn't actually use the word homosexual? Um, actually, um, that portion of the Bible wasn't written in English. Did you know that? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It wasn't written in English. In fact, it doesn't use the English word homosexual in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, because it was written in Greek. And uh, that was not the word that they used back then. And like I pointed out last week on the episode, in, you know, that I think we entitled this episode is banned by the official religion, of, you know, state religion of the United States of America. Well, what I pointed out in that um, is that the phrase used in First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine, which in the English Standard Version reads, "Let me read it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Okay, that's what it says in the English Standard Version. Now, if you were to, let's go to the the NIV. Hang on a second here. I actually have multiple translations on my computerized Bible. Let me go to the old NIV. Here's what it says. Do not be deceived. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Okay. Um, that's one translation here. And then, of course, let's pull up the King James just to be nice to the King James only crowd out there. Uh, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, will, or nor drunkards. So here's the idea, okay? <clears throat> Every one of these translations is translating from a Greek text. This letter written by the Apostle Paul was originally written in Koine Greek. So, each of the different translations is trying to translate what the Greek says there. And the Greek does not actually say homosexual, which, by the way, um, if I'm correct on this, and I did some research on this and people have been, you know, helping me with this, 
the word homosexual itself is a fairly recent term in the English language. It's, it's a term coined, if I'm not mistaken, really back in the 20th century. So it's a new word, okay? Um, so the idea is this, is that, well, yeah, back in the year 50, 51, 52 AD, when the Apostle Paul wrote this in Koine Greek, he did not use the word homosexual. Did you know that? It's absolutely true. And so when you look at these different English translations that have different words that they're using to describe or to translate the particular phrase, what what they're looking at here, all you need to do is look at the Greek. The Greek phrase, by the way, it, there's two of them. Or do you not know, hute malakoi, hute arsenakoitai, Two different phrases, both describing homosexual acts, okay, um, to, which comes in the English Standard Version as the phrase men who practice homosexuality, okay. But Malakoi, basically referring to the effeminate receiver, arsenikoitai, you know, the um, kind of the think of the person on top. That's the idea here. Both are, are described. Uh, both words are used. So his argument, and let me back up the, uh, the the tape here a little bit here. His argument is silly. And the reason why it's silly is because he's arguing that, oh, it doesn't say homosexual there. He, he's basically accusing um, Louis Giglio of engaging in falsehood. Okay, because uh, he says that the word doesn't, that the word homosexual is not there. And what's he referencing? A different English translation. Does that really help? No. If you want to know what that passage really says, technically you're going to need to look it up in the Greek. So listen again to Lawrence O'Donnell's <clears throat> yeah, amazingly, horribly bad and like silly argument. Well, I heard that, and I didn't think the word homosexual appeared in the Bible. And so I checked it today. Where he says the word homosexual, the Bible actually uses the word effeminate. Now, it turns out there are some very new versions of the Bible that do use the word homosexual now instead of effeminate. So the Bible, which is supposed to be the unchangeable word of God, hasn't been absolutely unchangeable by haters of gay people who are... What a dumb argument. The absolutely unchangeable word of God hasn't been absolutely unchangeable. <clears throat> yeah, um, Lawrence, serious? You expect us to take this argument seriously. If you, the, the, the part that hasn't changed is the original Greek. Go back to the Greek and you'll see what it says. Now, the reason why English translations differ for the most part, is because they're trying to translate from the original language into a vernacular form of English that a large majority of people can not only understand, but find readable. Okay, for instance, okay, if you were to look in my notebook, okay, I keep a notebook of my translations of both the Old Testament and New Testament from Hebrew into English and from Greek into English, okay? If you were to look at my translations, trust me when I tell you this, you wouldn't find it to be the type of thing where, hey, let's check out the Roseboro Standard Edition and let's read it, okay? My translation is highly not readable, okay? Okay. 
because when I translate, I try to, for the most part, go word for word rather than thought for thought, and and it reads kind of stiff and wooden. It, it It's not really good English. The reason why is because when I'm teaching from, you know, from my notes, I want it, I want to be able to be able to look back into the Greek using my translation. And so when I'm translating, my translation is wooden on purpose because it reminds me of what's there in the Greek if I don't have the Greek text in front of me. So the idea is, is that, you know, I teach from the ESV and I keep notes of my translations um, that are it just is not readable. That's just all I'm saying is is that you really wouldn't find reading the Roseboro Standard Edition to be all that fun. Okay, <laughs> let's just put it this way: it does. It's not. It's very stiff, but that's on purpose because of what I want it for. I could polish it and make it more readable for you know an English translation, but it's for me. It's not for you. Does that make sense? So, um, but the thing is, is that the part that doesn't change is the original document the original the what we have in the greek that doesn't change at all so here he's basically making this argument listen listen okay the bible which is supposed to be unchanging has been changed no it hasn't it hasn't been changed the greek text is still intact okay what's happened is is that we have a different translation trying to reach a you know, a, a current modern audience, uh, you know, of English speakers. Uh, by the way, the ESV itself, which I'm so fond of, there is a British English edition of the ESV as well as a an American English edition of the ESV. Should I therefore pr- say that because, well, there's a British English edition and a U.S. English edition, well, therefore, they're tinkering with the Word of God. No. <laughs> Both of them are translations trying to reach a particular group of English speakers and readers you know, and speak to them in a way that is you know, is not difficult and understandable. You, you get what I'm saying. Now, let me fast forward a little bit. Now, this comes back to the, the section that I've named, Should Christians Believe in Stoning Prostitutes? Well, here's another one of Lawrence O'Donnell's just blisteringly banal and silly arguments against Christianity. Listen in. As I've pointed out in many previous episodes of The Politics of Religion, no one accepts all of the teaching of the Bible. No one. No one accepts all of the teaching of the Bible? No one? Well, then we could just throw out any part we don't like. This is his argument. Listen. There are no literal followers of the world word of God as presented in the Bible. Really? Left on earth. They're completely gone? If there were any, they would have to be burning people at the stake all day, every day. Really? Because that's what the Bible says? To burn people at the stake all day, every day? For example, the Bible orders that prostitutes be burned at the stake. Oh, now this has all the appearances of, oh no, he's, he's killed Christianity with this argument. No, he hasn't. Okay. <laughs> this is even like, it's, it's a bad argument. And here's the reason why, because he's not recognizing the Bible for what it is. Okay, the Bible, 66 different books, 30, 31 authors, depending on how you, you know, you slice it there. Um, But here's the idea. 
okay, is that in the section that he's referencing, okay, this would be from the Mosaic Covenant, probably from the book of Leviticus, what he's citing there is a section of scripture that was the civil law for the theocracy of the nation of Israel. Do Christians, if they believe the Bible, do Christians have to believe in stoning and burning prostitutes? No, they don't. And just because they don't doesn't mean that you don't believe the Bible or all of it. Okay. For instance, I absolutely believe that in the nation of Israel, of ancient Israel, which at the time of its founding was a theocracy, in the laws given in the Mosaic Covenant that were the laws that governing the theocracy of Israel, that it was a capital crime to be a prostitute, an idolater, a false prophet, um, you know, and the list can go on and on, okay? I absolutely believe that. Do I therefore, by extension, am I required then to believe that the death penalty must be instituted for all prostitutes in the United States if I'm a Bible-believing Christian? Nope, not at all. And here's the reason why, is because the United States of America is not the theocracy of Israel, okay? And there's this little distinction. You've, you've heard of these two little distinctions, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. A good way to refer to that is the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, okay? We're not under the Old Covenant. As Christians, we're under the New Covenant, and the new covenant doesn't require us to stone prostitutes, but to call all sinners to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So you can absolutely believe everything in the Bible and still not believe that the Bible is commanding you to stone prostitutes or to burn them at the stake or anything of the sort. Because the Bible doesn't command you to do that. It doesn't command you to do that at all. The Bible, God commanded the, the people of the nation of ancient Israel who lived in that old theocracy, he commanded them to do that, not you and not me. Now, the fact that it was a capital crime should tell you something of what God thinks about it, okay? And God, on the last day, is the judge. You get it? So, I mean, these are not arguments. This is just ridiculous, silly, surfacey types of things from somebody who thinks he knows something about the Bible, but it's clear that he knows nothing about the Bible. And so these arguments, I mean, they're super easy to shoot down, but see, here's the deal. There's a good chance that, you know, maybe at the water cooler tomorrow or at your next family gathering, you know, that person in your, in, in your family who likes ribbing you and tearing you apart because they know you're a Christian, they, they might have heard this commentary and, and they know that you think that homosexuality is a sin. And so they're going to th throw these zingers at you. Well, now you're prepared to defend yourself and to be able to defend God's word and then turn the tables and give an answer and a reason for the hope that lies within you. Proclaim Christ and him crucified for your sins and, and for their sins. All right. All right. Next section. Now, I don't have to do any uh, update music for this because we've already done our news music. But this is from the Fox News website. And the, the headline reads, we are raising a generation of deluded narcissists. And this has, again, we, we did a segment last week on narcissism. 
This has nothing technically to do with the church, but it has everything to do with the church. Listen in. Are we raising a generation of deluded narcissists? Who better to ask than Dr. Keith Ablo of the Fox News Medical A team? I think everybody was struck by this survey that uh, these college kids all think they're so great these days. Dr. Keith, well, what was your take on it? Uh, it rings true with what I've experienced treating young people, uh, some of whom thankfully want to get closer to their real feelings and their capacity for empathy. Uh, but many of whom struggle to do that. Why? Because they face social media and reality TV and technology that tells them that they're stars on Twitter worthy of followers, uh, that they ought to have a thousand friends on Facebook and be able to delete unwanted feedback and block people who don't like them. Did you hear that? <laughs> Boy, does that sound familiar. There's a particular group of um, pastors... <clears throat> in air quotes there, who have a really bad habit of deleting and any comments are who that are negative against them, attacking their critics, you know, engaging in ad hominem attacks. I see I'm, I'm reminded of a particular group of pastors that we seem to cover here at Fighting for the Faith on a regular amount of time. Sounds like they're a bunch of deluded narcissists. We are truly raising a generation of narcissists because what we're doing is reinforcing the notion that they ought to think of themselves as incredibly special and beyond reproach. So how do we fix that? Well, Stop, t stop telling them they're special. <laughs> well, how we fix it is, number one, we get back to things like feelings. Psychotherapy, by the way, is an excellent way to fix that because... Yeah, I'm not so sure it might, that's the solution that we need, but okay. It helps people confront the reality of who they really are. Other things, sports helps, getting outside, ha outside having pets, things that don't involve this inflated sense of self-esteem. Listen, if you're working uh, video games several hours a day or two hours a day that allow you to think you're a sharpshooter, a, a, a ski pro, a tennis pro, uh, that you can compete with uh, National Football League athletes, even though you know when you turn the machine off that it isn't true, while you're participating, you're pumped up and you're thinking you're very special indeed. Bottom line is what we have to do is stop this craziness where we give kids who lose on sports teams ribbons and trophies. We have to stop. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I call that the come to come compete and breathe award. You know, it doesn't matter if you, you know, you lost every single game and oh, we're not going to keep score anyway, but just come and participate and we'll give you the show up, the show up and here's your your award for breathing the craziness of grade inflation in our schools stop the craziness of giving tenure to lousy teachers stop stop the craziness of having people who've never actually you know gone to seminary make them pastors you know who have no clue how to handle god's word stop making them pastors and and church planters and things like that yeah the idiocy of saying that we're running a country that's a financial responsible financially responsible country when we're headed for a financial abyss and that's what we have to do so it's 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 not the the problem here is not just social media and things like it, it really is parents teachers it's across the yeah and pastors yeah board it's all of us uh bottom line is uh we're living as though uh we can uh, be wealthy when we're not. Yep. Uh, we watch one stock market bubble rise after another and then burst because the truth always wins. You can't defeat reality forever. <laughs> right. Uh, we deploy Adderall like candy. 
Mm -hmm. and other psychiatric medicines like candy. Why? To keep this delusion going. The bottom line is we need a true look at how to confront what will be the greatest epidemic of our time, and that is social media and other technologies like it as a drug of abuse, because that's what they are. All right, Dr. Keith Ablo of the Fox News Medical A team. Great to see you, Dr. Keith. There you go. So that's Dr. Keith Ablo basically claiming that we're raising a generation of deluded narcissists. Now, let me uh, bring what scripture has to bear on this because I want to work this back towards the church because I, listening to this guy, I'd sit there and go, you know, let me show you a few things that are happening in the church. <laughs> That's what we tend to do here. But I'm absolutely convinced that we're dealing with an epidemic of deluded narcissism in the church and narcissists in the church, church planters, church leaders, vision casting, seeker driven pastors who can't who have no skill whatsoever in rightly handling God's word uh, claim that they're special and that God has blessed them because they have huge followings. But they're, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, second Timothy chapter three, the apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy spirit did warn us prophetically that this was coming. Okay, let me, let me read. Paul writes, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Now stop there for a second, okay? Now, this has been going on in humanity since Adam and Eve fell, okay? The thing that Paul is pointing to here is not a general thing out there regarding lovers of self, because that's what unbelievers do, okay? He's describing what's going to be coming in the church, the last place you'd expect to see these things. That's what makes this such a warning, okay? It's not that out there there's going to be a lot of narcissism, and there is, okay? But out there isn't where Paul's focusing. It's with in the visible church itself, when this becomes the thing that's going on in the church, and you can say, yeah, that, that, that these things are happening in the church, you know that, well, <clears throat> that we're getting really close, really close to Christ returning in glory to judge both the living and dead. That will be the ultimate popping of the non-reality bubble created by deluded narcissists. But we, let me read this again. But understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. A narcissist, by definition, is a lover of self. That's right. So People will be narcissists. You can literally translate it that way. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good. I mean, this, I mean, seriously, this entire list sounds to me like Perry Noble and other so-called pastors of his ilk, right? Okay. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. 
For among, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just like Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. These are men of cor corrupted in mind, and they are disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Okay, now, this is not an official Rick Warren update, but I want to point something out here, okay, while we're talking about deluded narcissists, okay? One of the points I've made several times over the years regarding the seeker-driven movement is that I'm convinced that we're, you know, when we listen to these sermons by seeker-driven pastors, it sounds like a watered-down light, L-I-T-E, version. Can you think of it like light beer, okay? Which I can't understand why anybody would want that. But anyway... Think of it like light beer. So the seeker-driven movement is like the light beer edition of the uh, of the word of faith heresy. Okay, and you know, and so Rick Warren would be like the light beer edition of Joel Osteen, right? Well, being that that I think that's the case, what we would expect to hear from Rick Warren are comments that sound well similar to uh, Joel Osteen and others of his ilk. Well, it just so happens. <clears throat> on Sunday on Oprah's Life class, Rick Warren made a comment that I was when I was at the gym on the elliptical. I was, you know, that's right. I was listening to this at, on the elliptical at the gym. That's right. I'm working out. Don't get excited. Anyway, while I was on the elliptical at the gym listening to this, I almost fell off the machine. <laughs> and was, people were looking at me like, "What's wrong with that guy?" It, Anyway, yeah, I, 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 I'm somewhat animated. Anyway, so without any further ado, here's the comment that nearly made me fall off the elliptical at, at the <laughs> at the gym because it sounds so much like something I hear Joel Osteen say. Listen in. Here's Rick Warren on Oprah. And so that's a, a key thing in this fourth card of your consciousness is that you let the Lord renew your mind. And, you know, I tell my members all the time, you, you know, you're going to listen to the word or the world. Because the world tells you all kinds of stuff. The world says, you're not competent, you're ugly, you don't matter, you're worthless. Don't listen to it. God says, you're valuable, you're capable, you're forgivable, you're usable. Uh-huh. So that's the light beer edition of, of the same stuff that, that, well, Joel Osteen spews. Don't believe me? Here's Joel Osteen. I want to talk to you today about the power of I am. What follows these two simple words will determine what kind of life you live. I am blessed, I am strong, I am healthy, or I am slow, I am unattractive, I am a terrible mother. The I am's that are coming out of your mouth will bring either success or failure. And all through the day, the power of I am is at work. We make a mistake, I am so clumsy. We look in the mirror, I am so old. We see somebody very talented, I am so average. We get caught in traffic, I am so unlucky. Many times we use the power of I am against us. We don't realize how it's affecting our future. Here's the principle, what follows the I am will always come looking for you. When you say, I am so clumsy, clumsiness comes looking for you. 
I am so old, wrinkles come looking for you. I am so overweight, calories come looking for you. It's just like you're inviting them. Whatever you follow the I am with, you're handing it an invitation, opening the door, giving it permission to be in your life. Now, the good news is you get to choose what follows the I am. When you go through the day saying, I am blessed, blessings come looking for you. I am talented, talent comes looking for you. You may not feel up to par, but when you say, I am healthy, health starts heading your way. Okay, now that's the that's the full version of it. Again, here's the um, Rick Warren's <clears throat> light beer edition of that same teaching. And so that's a, a key thing in this fourth card of your consciousness is that you let the Lord renew your mind. And, you know, I tell my members all the time, you, you know, you're going to listen to the word or the world because the world tells you all kinds of stuff. The world says you're not competent, you're ugly, you don't matter, you're worthless. Don't listen to it. God says you're valuable, you're capable, you're forgivable, you're usable. Uh-huh, yep. So, um, again, understand this, Second Timothy chapter 3, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Mm-hmm. We are definitely raising a generation of deluded narcissists and ground zero i think for a lot of this narcissistic delusion well it's none other than evangelical megachurches like osteen's and warren's all right we're up on our first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fighting for the faith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian click on the subscribe button or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian after the break we're going to take a closer look at uh, rick warren's losing poker hand on oprah's life class that'll be part two of it don't want to miss it we'll be right back stay tuned If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Sunday, he's a heretic and he's okay. 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 He's ok
purpose God's word, I take your tithe and spend it on private jets. Have you seen my bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. Twist God's word, take your tithe and spend it on private jets. Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. I write bad books that will land you all in hell. I'll never say I'm sorry, cause I'll be there as well. He twists God's word, he writes bad books that will land us all in hell. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no. I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You got to see it to believe it. Warning, if after attending church you have warm and fuzzy feelings all about you, you're probably being fed narcissism and need to flee the building immediately. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Are you a member of our crew yet? Have you joined the crew yet? Let me ask again. Are you going to join the crew like now? It's a good thing for you to join the crew. Notice the theme here. 
If you're not already a member of our crew, it's a fantastic way to support us, and it's not very expensive. And what I mean by that, it's only $6.95 every month. That's it. $6.95. Two cups of coffee in a 30-day period. You just, you know, that's how much it costs at Starbucks for a couple. That's a lot of money for a coffee, but... <laughs> It's not a lot of money for good theology. If you're growing while listening to Fighting for the Faith and your discernment skills are getting sharper, you're understanding sound doctrine, good apologetics, and and how to rightly hear whether or not somebody's proclaiming Christ and him crucified for your sins, then, well, support us by becoming a member of our crew. Go to fightingforthefaith.com. Right there in the middle of the homepage, there's two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says join our crew and join our crew today. Along the way, if you're a member of the crew, there's perks along the way, and we're working on our latest perks. So just keep keep that in mind. They come up from time to time. And so that's our way of saying thank you to our crew members. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you do that by clicking on the donate button on our homepage, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight and let me thank you for your support and those of you who cook out there if you want to contribute your recipes to our uh, forthcoming cookbook and it's a long-term project go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash cookbook for details and uh, and uh, submit your recipe submissions there all right moving along purpose it keeps you going strong like a car with a full tank of gas time for another rick warren update Everyone else has a purpose, so what's mine? Oh, look, here's a penny. It's from the year I was born. It's a sign. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose, gonna find out, don't wanna wait, got to make sure that my life will be great, gotta find my purpose before it's too late. Yeah, I gotta find my purpose. Okay, so uh, this is um, part two of our... Uh, coverage of Rick Warren's losing poker hand on Oprah's life class. And what I want to do at the, before we get into, uh, we're going to take a look at card number two today, but before we do that, I actually want to play for you what the five cards are and let Rick Warren explain it to you. Okay. And the reason I want to do that is, well, to ask the simple question, if this is a biblical teaching, okay, a true biblical teaching, how come pastors going all the way back to the first century church, okay, at the time of the apostles, and then into the writings of the ancient church fathers, you know, Irenaeus, Ignatius, Polycarp, the, you know, those guys, and, you know, Augustine, and, yeah, and moving Cyprian of Alexandria, you know, you know, people like that. Um, if, how come they never taught about these five cards? Okay, that's kind of the bugging question that should be bugging you. Okay, if this is, if Rick Warren, if what he's really teaching is true Christianity, true doctrine, truly what the Bible teaches, then don't you think the pastor should have been teaching it all along? Now, the reason I ask this is because, well, the setup for all of this is that these five poker cards are based 
on a sermon that Rick Warren preached at Saddleback and that Oprah either listened to or watched online or was in attendance. We're not exactly sure on the details on that, but Oprah was struck by this particular sermon and Rick Warren was invited on Oprah's Life class to teach it. So let me have Rick Warren explain to you what the five cards are. We'll throw a little Oprah in there just to keep you reminded of the fact that he's teaching this at Oprah's Life class. But here's Rick Warren explaining card number one. Here we go. Tonight's Life class with Pastor Rick is all about winning the hand you're dealt in life. So we're going to play a little poker with Pastor Rick. You say... Five cards mm-hmm. that can make up our identity. So right. what's first? Well, the first card is your chemistry. I call it your chemistry. And your chemistry involves your DNA, uh, your hormones, your, your biology, your health, your strengths. It's your body because everything you're going to do in life, you're going to do through your body. And if your body's in pain, you've got to deal with that first. Right. Shakespeare said it's hard to be a philosopher with a toothache. Okay, so Rick Warren says that card number one, he calls it your chemistry. Okay, so here's the question I have again. If this is really a biblical teaching, why haven't Christian pastors been teaching about these five cards for millennia? Here's him explaining now card number two. The second card in the hand you're dealt, I call your connections. Now, your connections are your relationships. And we all know... When your relationships are bad, you feel bad. Yeah. When your relationships are good, you feel good. You, are, the, the disconnection from other people, the connection, is a large determiner of your happiness. Right. Now, we, weren't, we were wired to be connected to each other. Right. In fact, the very first thing God says in the Garden of Eden is, it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, we're made for relationships. We're made, we're made to be connected. Life stinks when you're disconnected. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so card number two. So you get chemistry and... And then connections. Here's card number three. The third card, and none of these you can control. You didn't control your chemistry. You don't control your first connections. You yes. can control later in life. Yes. You can make healthy choices there. But the third is your circumstances, and you certainly don't control those. The things that life throws at you, the things that are done to you. Yes. Okay, so, so chemistry, connections, circumstances... Here's card number four. Now, the fourth card is I call your consciousness. Interesting. Your consciousness is the way you talk to yourself. Oh, good. Your consciousness is the story you tell yourself. Remember when I was talking earlier about autopilot? Yes. I can tell your autopilot. Finish this sentence ten times. It's just like me to be. Okay, so chemistry, connections... Um, I forget the <laughs> and consciousness. Yeah, okay. You get there's all c words. Now here's the uh, the fit the last card, and I'll let Oprah summarize all of the previous cards. I missed one. And getting old, creeping to crap too. I should have written this down anyway. But uh, here's the here's Oprah explain you know summarizing, and then Rick Warren giving us the last card. Here we go. Chemistry, connections, circumstances, and consciousness. All hands you are dealt. Right. Okay. You say the fifth card makes or breaks your entire hand. What do y'all think it is? Very good. You got a smart group. Smart group. Choices. Choices are the wild card. And the wild card can change the suit and the number of any other card. Only if you're pre- playing crazy eights. Okay. So I may have been dealt certain things in my chemistry. 
and certain things in my connections and certain things in my circumstances and things I didn't even control and thought th things that people said to me yes. that were put into my mind, tapes and things like that. But one of the greatest gifts God gave us besides Jesus himself is the gift of free choice. Okay, so choices, okay? So those are the five cards. So here's the question I have. Okay, this was based on a sermon. Okay, keep coming back to the question, and it, you need to answer it, okay? If this is really a biblical teaching, why haven't Christian pastors been preaching this same message for the last 2,000 years? Well, the answer is simple. This isn't a biblical message, but this was what he preached at his church. He preached about these five cards. And notice he says, I call them, I call them, I call them, I call them, I call them. Well, what does the Bible call them? Well, the reality is this. The Bible doesn't teach this. So at its core, what we're dealing with here is, well, a typical Rick Warren maneuver. Rick Warren teaching what Rick Warren wants to teach, not what the scriptures teach, not what the Bible says not what God has revealed. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that Rick Warren thinks that his ideas are more important and have a higher priority in deciding what he should preach on any given Sunday than what is revealed in the Word of God. In other words, Rick Warren's agenda is supreme. God's agenda laid out for him in for what he should be teaching in God's Word well, takes a distant back seat. And what I mean by distant back seat, you shouldn't, shouldn't think of it like a vehicle, like the normal kind of commuter car, okay? Where, you know, Rick Warren's in the front seat and then there's a back seat. No, 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 no. You have to think of it more like a bus, okay? And what's happened is, is that Rick Warren's hijacked the church bus. He's now driving the bus and he's not relegated Jesus to a seat that's behind him. He's relegated Jesus and God's word and Christ's agenda to the very, 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 very back seat of the bus. Now, Rick Warren can't throw him off the bus altogether, although I think Rick Warren would prefer to do that, because Rick needs to keep Jesus around, at least be able to show, look, he's right here in the bus. See, there he is. Wave, Jesus. So that he can create the impression that, you know, what he's, you know, that Jesus is on board, right? But you'll notice that uh, Jesus doesn't get to decide what it is that Rick Warren teaches in church. Because this started out as a sermon at Saddleback. All of this was already done at Saddleback. Okay, it just, this was the message that Oprah picked out from the sermons that Rick Warren is preaching and said, oh, this is the one. This is the message that I think would suit Oprah's spiritual students and disciples in my life class. Okay, now, he, he, now listen, okay? I guarantee you, okay, the pastor at the church that I'm a member of, and I, and I teach at this church, the pastor of the, uh, of the church that I'm a member of, there isn't a single sermon that Oprah will be able to listen to and say, oh, I, I've just got to share this with the people in my life class, okay? I guarantee you that if Oprah were to go on my church's website and listen to the sermons or, you know, or whatever, just listen to the sermons, she'd start a sermon and go, ooh, no, not that one. 
Go to the next one. Ooh, no. Yeah, no, not that. No, no, no. She'd go to the next. No, that would not. Absolutely. Oh, hang on. Go to the next one. No. And she might even start weeping and gnashing her teeth. Okay, because none of those sermons would fit with Oprah's spirituality. Okay. So here's the question I have for you. Um, would your pastor um, ever, the messages that he's teaching, would Oprah ever be able to click on those messages and go, oh, that, yeah, we got to have this on life class. Well, if that is the case, then may I, you know, argue with you and basically say that if that's true, then your pastor is doing something terribly wrong, terribly, terribly wrong. If his message doesn't offend Oprah and her false religions, religious ideas and her idolatrous notions, then your pastor is doing something wrong. The fact that Oprah would listen to this sermon by Rick Warren and go, I got to have this on life class, basically says Rick Warren, his sermons don't offend Oprah, but resonate with her false religion. That is a big red flag. It's a red flag with horns and buzzers and smoke detectors going off and things like that. That's not good. That's really, really, really bad. In fact, my hope for you is that you attend a church that if Oprah were to go onto your pastor's website, your church's website, and listen to the sermons, she would be so upset after sampling five or six of them and so offended that she would never want to hear from your pastor again because that would mean your pastor's doing his job, preaching the only way of salvation through a cru- the crucified and risen, virgin-born Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who hasn't come to have you declare wonderful things about yourself and ooze and gush and goo about how great you are, but instead confront you with your sins and call you to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Your pastors and doing that Sunday after Sunday, if if there's now sermons that Oprah would really love to have your pastor on her program to teach the life class for, that should be grounds for you saying, it's time to find a different church. Now, here's Rick Warren teaching again about card number two. We won't interrupt him so that he can complete his his thoughts. Here we go. The second card in the hand you're dealt, I call your connections. Now, your connections are your relationships. And we all know when your relationships are bad, you feel bad. Yeah. When your relationships are good, you feel good. You, the, the disconnection from other people, the connection is a large determiner of your happiness. Right. Now, we, weren't, we were wired to be connected to each other. Right. In fact, the very first thing God says in the Garden of Eden is, it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, we're made for relationships. We're made, we're made to be connected. Life stinks when you're disconnected. Mm-hmm. Now, when God, by the way, did you know God hates loneliness? No. He does. God hates loneliness. That's why he says it's not good to be alone. But you're never alone because there's all. Okay. It's one thing for God to say it's not good that man should be alone. 
it's a whole other thing to say God hates loneliness, okay? There isn't a single passage of scripture that says God hates loneliness. There are some passages that where it talks about what God hates, okay? Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We have a letter, an epistle, dictated from Jesus by the Apostle John. So the idea is that Jesus asked the Apostle John to write a letter, okay? He appeared to him, and he wrote, he wrote several letters to different churches, including the church at Ephesus, okay? Now, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And in here, we find that Jesus hates something. Let's listen in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, that's right. You heard that right. Jesus talking, writing an epistle. You know, this is a bona fide letter to the church in Ephesus, okay? They had tested these apostles that claimed to be apostles and found them to be false, and Christ commends them for that, right? But they, they had lost their first love, and so Christ calls them to repent. Okay, Christ calls them to repent, and then he gives them another attaboy. Here's the attaboy. Yet this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, from what we can gather from church history, the Nicolaitans were a sect claiming to be Christian who basically despised the law of God and turned the grace of God into licentiousness or a license to sin. Okay, the word that we use you know, to describe this type of theological error is called antinomianism. Those who basically say, I'm saved by grace, therefore I can sin like there's no tomorrow. And, you know, it, and they turn the grace of God into a license to sin. Okay, this is what Jesus says of them. Okay, he says to the church at Ephesus, this you have, and this is a good thing. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And then Jesus says, which... I also hate. Okay? In other words, there is a there is a you can literally say that Jesus does hate some things. Now, for Rick Warren to say that God hates loneliness. Um okay, in order to make that statement, you need a passage that says that. Without a passage that says that, you're engaging in speculation. 
you're not doing theology, you're doing Rick Warren's psychology. In Rick Warren's head, he believes that God hates loneliness, but the verse that he quoted doesn't say that, nor is it a valid conclusion from the text. And the Christians don't do theology and doctrine this way. Christians ought to do theology this way. When God's word speaks clearly, we give voice to that and can say this is true with certainty. Where God's word is silent, we say this, I don't know. I don't know. Don't try to get behind the text or try to build a theology that is based upon extrapolations from passages. Okay, that's never a safe thing to do. You'll find that those extrapolations oftentimes create very shaky and unsolid ground that causes all kinds of problems and oftentimes can metastasize into full-blown cancerous heresy. So you you don't want to do that. But I, I can't think of a single passage of Scripture where it says God hates loneliness. Okay, maybe he does. I don't know. But see, the thing is, is that if he hasn't said that he hates it, how am I to say that he has? And see, this is the problem. Rick Warren isn't doing biblical doctrine. He's doing Warren ideas. And Warren ideas do not rise to the level of Christian theology and doctrine. They're just Warrenisms. And so you don't want to be a Warrenite. You want to be a Christian. In order to be a Christian, you got to stick firm to the words of Christ and not to the ideas burbling up from within any so-called Christian leader. That's not solid ground. That's, in fact, that's quicksand. But we continue. Yes. God hates loneliness. That's why he says it's not good to be alone. But you're never alone because there's always you're the not. presence of God. Yeah. But life's all about learning how to love. Learning how to love each other, learning how to love God, learning how to love ourselves. We were put on this planet. Okay, here we go again. A little bit of a rehash from yesterday's episode. Listen again. But life's all about learning how to love. Okay, love is the commandment, the core commandment of the law. Love God, love neighbor. It's not the thing, it, this isn't good news, this is bad news, okay? And if we have to learn how to love, well, that means that we're not loving. If we're not loving, then we're breaking the commandments. If we're breaking the commandments, we're liable to the wrath of God. In other words, loving God, loving neighbor is not the gospel. This is the law, the very thing that condemns you. Learning how to love each other, learning how to love God, learning how to love ourselves. We were put on this planet to learn love. So that Learning how to love ourselves. Hang on a second here. Yeah, deluded narcissists seems to be the emerging theme today. Second Timothy chapter 3. I just want to make sure I got this right. Okay. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Listen again. How to love God, learning how to love ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Got it. We were put on this planet to learn love. So the second mark of connections yes. is extremely important. Second mark of connections. Okay. One day, a, a guy's walking down the street and he asked Jesus, says, can you summarize the whole Bible? Jesus goes, yeah, I'll give you cliff notes on the Bible. Here it is. Two things. Love God and love your neighbors yourself. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. So it's, it's all that. By the way, what he just said there is not true. We covered this in depth yesterday. Again, let's take a look at this Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. 
it was not somebody coming to Jesus and saying, hey, can you give us cliff notes? Can you summarize the whole Bible? That's not what the question was. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Here's what it says. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the great com? He didn't say summarize the whole Bible. He said, what's the greatest commandment? Okay. What's the commandments? The law. Is this gospel or law? Answer, it's straight up law. So Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, let me give you another passage of scripture, you know, to kind of help with this idea. You know, oftentimes, you know, that I'm accused of, basically forcing this law gospel distinction on on the bible but this is not a this is not well it's not like dispensationalism dispensationalism is a concept that was foisted onto the scriptures okay this law gospel is not like that law gospel is what the scriptures teach regarding how we're to how to understand these distinctions it makes the distinction and then drives these points home i would point you to Galatians as uh, as the supreme example of that, okay? So going to the book of Galatians, okay? This is what the Judaizers were mixing, law and gospel. They were basically adding, basically saying salvation is is achieved in part by your keeping of the law. Namely, they were saying you can't really truly be a Christian unless you keep certain laws, you know, particularly um, kosher laws and uh, laws regarding circumcision. So you dudes out there, if you're a Christian, you're not really saved unless you've had this little cosmetic surgery done on a particular member of your body. This is what they were saying. Okay. Now, Paul engaged in the book of Galatians is a it literally a compact, highly compressed, terse in points, very in-your-face epistle that blows their theology out of the water using the proper distinction of law and gospel. Okay. Here's, we're going to, we'll start here at Galatians chapter two, verse 11. Here's what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you, though you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified. Listen again. We know the person is not justified. Here's that Greek word again, dikaiao, means to to be declared righteous. We know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the law. Okay? Summary of the law according to Jesus in Matthew 22. Love God, love neighbor. You could literally rephrase this and say, we know that a person is not declared righteous by 
loving God and loving neighbor, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, that means to be declared righteous, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one, not one person, by loving God and loving neighbor, no one, not one person will be declared righteous or justified before God. Not one person. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ in a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to what he says here in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. He doesn't say, I do not nullify the law. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law... Well, then Christ died for no purpose, okay? And then it goes on and says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, the answer is by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected? By the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. So know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify or declare righteous the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, let me, in fact, let me opening up my hymnal here. And there's a hymn that I want to read to you, okay? And one of one of my arguments that uh, we should not be getting rid of hymns is because they teach great theology. They worship God by rightly proclaiming what Scripture teaches on particular doctrines. In fact, if you follow me on my Letter of Mark blog, then you know that uh, the other day um, I posted on the Letter of Mark blog a hymn that sings literally and teaches the doctrine of original sin. It's a fantastic little hymn. But um, this hymn that I want to share with you here takes the doctrine of the right understanding of God's law and sets it to verse. Here it is. The, The name of the hymn is The Law of God is Good and Wise. It is a 19th century hymn um, accredited to uh, Matthias Loy. And here's what it says. Just listen to the good theology here. This is, gives you our right understanding of law and gospel. Here's what it says. The law of God is good 
and wise and sets his, that's God's will, before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. Its light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts that we may see our lost estate and turn from sin before too late. To those who help in Christ have found and would in works of love abound, it shows what deeds are his delight and should be done as good and right. But those who scornfully disdain God's law shall then in sin remain. Its terror in their ear resounds and keeps their wickedness in bounds. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. To Jesus for our refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free, and humbly worship at his throne, saved by his grace, through faith alone. Fantastic hymn, great lyrics, excellent theology, fantastic doctrine, worshiping God by singing what his word reveals. And in six stanzas, Six verses, this hymn lays out the proper distinction of law and gospel and touches on two of the three of the right uses of God's law. And so I'm absolutely convinced that these hymns, uh, we, we, we must not chuck them. We shouldn't be despising them because the so-called 7-Eleven contemporary praise songs, just, they're like sieves. They have no ability to carry the the water and deep theology of scripture just they're, they're absolute sieves they you know nothing can stand in them it's ridiculous so you know these are these things are very superior but the point is is that what this says here in verse is exactly what scripture teaches so again i point this out here in card number 2 because rick warren he's not preaching christ and him crucified he thinks and taught everybody there at oprah's life class that the cliff notes of the Bible is really simple. You just need to learn how to love, okay? Because the because Jesus was asked what the cliff notes of the Bible is, and it's simple. Just love God and love neighbor. Well, that's the summary of the law, and that's the thing that condemns us. Because none of us, me, you, any of us, none of us loves God and loves neighbor perfectly. And that's why we need a crucified and risen Savior. Let me back up the audio just a little bit so you can hear this. And on the street and he asked Jesus, says, can you summarize the whole Bible? Jesus goes, yeah, I'll give you cliff notes on the Bible. Here it is. Two things. Love God and love your neighbors yourself. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. Yeah, that's it. It's so simple. That's it. Just do it. Good luck. Because you will not be graded on a curve. So it's, it's all about love. And I tell people, the greatest use of your life is love. The greatest expression of love is time. And the greatest time to love is now. Okay. Okay, let me back that up. Listen to this litany. And tell me, is this Christian theology? It's all about love. And I tell people, the greatest use of your life is love. The greatest expression of love is time. And the greatest time to love is now. Okay. Okay, where does the Bible teach any of that? doesn't rick warren isn't teaching christian doctrine he's teaching warrenism not christianity warrenism this is warren's own theology and that's the problem 
He's teaching what he naturally understands, the law that's written in his heart. But if he truly trusted and believed Christ and the gospel, that's what he'd be proclaiming at Oprah's life class. And that's not what he proclaimed. He condemned them by preaching nothing but law. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, um, a narcissistic masleration about chasing lions or something like that. Yeah, don't want to miss it. Hang on. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barrel nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Heading back down to Joplin, Missouri. 
we got to do this right. There's a tradition we do here at Fighting for the Faith. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon? <laughs> yeah, we can call it that. <clears throat> Masleration, something like that. Comes to us via Ignite Church, Joplin, Missouri. Heath Mooneyhan presiding. The name of said Masleration is entitled Lion Chasers. Uh, this, <laughs> yeah, just all I can say is please don your tinfoil pyramid hat. It's going to be a train wreck. That's all I got to say. Remember what we've been talking about. We're raising a generation of deluded narcissists. Just keep that in the back of your head and you'll understand what's going wrong here and why he's doing to the Bible what he's doing to the Bible because he thinks the Bible's about him. Yeah, he's uh, of the same ilk as, well, guys like Stephen Furtick and others. Anyway, so let me go ahead and kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Heath Mooneyhan and his attempt at the sermon entitled Lion Chasers. Here we go. We're going to get started here. Um, the Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and of self-discipline. God doesn't give us the spirit of fear. Do you know that we're only born, whenever we're born, we're born with two fears. Okay, gonna stop. All, you got to stop him. Got to stop him right there. Okay. If you have your Bible, flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. I want to point something out. Okay. And this is real simple. Okay. Our three primary rules, in case you're wondering, okay, how do I keep myself from being deceived by somebody who's twisting God's word? Okay. There are three primary rules. Now, there are other rules that when it, when it comes to sound biblical exegesis. Exegesis means to read out what's in Scripture. You, that's what you're, uh, a solid preacher is supposed to be doing. Okay, The three primary rules are context, context, and context. So the idea here is this, is that don't just take a verse and then rip out another verse from somewhere else and rip out another verse from somebody else. That's a sheer sign oftentimes that somebody is not handling God's word correctly. Although it's possible to talk about a passage of scripture that talks about the same subject from one area of scripture then to another area of scripture where they're both touching on the same topic and you're not ripping God's word out of context there. What you're doing is taking two passages, maybe even by two different authors, both inspired by the Holy Spirit that deal with the same topic and you can put them together and they shed light for each other and it helps you understand what God teaches. Okay, that's something different than what's going on here because notice, look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 
Uh, sorry, second First Corinthians. Second, getting old, getting old, yeah, creeping decrepitude. I just, you've got to love it. You go around the planet a few times. More times you go around the planet, you know, it seems to speed up, and and the brain does not quite catch up. It goes downhill. It's ah, frustrating. Anyway, Second Timothy chapter one verse seven. Notice this. Here's what it says. It starts with the word for. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. Okay, that should tell you something. It begins with four. If you look at the very, very first thing, it, it, the last thing in verse six, it's a comma. Okay, so now we got a problem. Heath Mooneyhan is going to make a point here from part of a sentence. Uh, your grammar teacher from elementary school would call this a sentence fragment. So now he's going to make his opening shot from scripture part of a sentence fragment. This is what he's preaching from. Well, let's put this thing back in context and see if we can figure out what Paul is talking about. He says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What's he talking about there? Well, the only way to figure that out is by reading a little bit ahead and figuring out what was going on. So we'll start at verse 3. Here's what it says. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night, as I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I am remi- I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. So this is a personal admonishment to, P- uh, to Timothy, okay? And this is part of his admonishment to fan into flames a specific gift that God had given him. Okay? That's what this is saying. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So verse 8 then continues, because God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, Therefore, we should not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, you can say of the gospel, nor me, his prisoner, but share, we're called then to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love and are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Well, now we know what's going on, okay? Paul's making a personal admonishment to fan into flames a particular gift that he have, that he has. In other words, don't let fear overwhelm you, but you go ahead and, and, and fan that gift into, fa- into flames. And it obviously has something to do with his preaching ministry, right? Okay, and to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and to share in his sufferings by being persecuted. That's what he's calling him to do. Okay, and then he goes on to reiterate the gospel as the motivation for all of this. 
Okay, now we know what's going on, and is that what Heath the Mooneyhan is going to teach us? You don't count on it. Let's continue. Only are wired with two fears whenever you're born. That is the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. And I know those sound crazy, but everybody has those fears whenever they are born. They don't have any other fears. The rest of the fears that we have in our lives are all learned. And so if the rest of the fears in our lives are all learned, I think it's fair to say that all of those fears that we, over time, can unlearn these things. A lot of, uh, they've got different phobias out there. It's, they use that word phobia after meaning fear for everything, you know, arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. There's actually people out there that I don't remember what it's called, but they have the fear of pastors and I don't blame them. And, uh, so, you know, if I scare you, sorry, you can get over that. And no, but there's people out there scared of all sorts of things. Um, my, my wife, she's, she doesn't like little critters. Apparently like how many people like are, are scared of mice? Come on, be honest. Most of you, like, oh, so all no, no guys raising his hands. Yeah, you ever notice that? But if you talk to their wives, man, like, if I, I heard of this this one guy's, like, he was telling me about how tough he was, and then his wife calls him out in front of me. He's like, remember that time that there was a mouse running through the room, and you screamed like a little girl and jumped up on the bed and stuff like that? He's like, no. And <laughs> But dudes get scared too. I've got some real fears. I've got a, a overwhelming fear of needles. I don't understand this fear. Um, people say, "Well, you've got lots of tattoos." And how does that work out? And I'm like, "Shut up!" And uh, it's different. You don't understand. And there's something about a metal object puncturing my veins and sucking stuff out of there that God intended for me to keep. I don't like it. I pass out and uh, you can mouth me all you want, but like I had to give blood not too long ago for, uh, not for you. I'm not giving up any, like if my wife or my kids need my blood or something like that, I'm like, cut me open, you know, just get a knife. But I had to give blood for life insurance reasons. And, uh, I thought I was going to have to collect right there. You know, I literally, (laughs) literally just passed out cold. Do you think that this was what Paul was talking about regarding not having a fear, a spirit of fear? Not at all. We just read it in context, put some context before, put some context after. Paul wasn't writing about fear of needles or phobias that you're know, the fear of falling or anything like that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fear that you naturally would fear as a result of, um, you know, the pressure you're feeling to not preach the gospel boldly or to suffer for the faith. That's what he was referring to. And so we, we've got these irrational fears. A lot of us, you know, a lot of us have good reasons to be scared of things. I have no good reason to be scared of needles. I just hate them. And so I don't know what your guys' fears are, but I pray today that uh, we can uh, overlook some, some of the little ones and the meaningless ones and really get to the heart of things because um, a lot of people are scared in their lives. They're, they're like... Uh... So Heath Mooneyhan, taking this verse out of context, is there to help you just to overcome any old kind of phobia or fear that you may be suffering, which is not what the Bible teaches at all. Great. Talk about an adventure in missing the point.
uh, completely paralyzed with fear and they don't know which way is up because they're scared to move forward. And so today I'm going to talk to you about, a, a, we're going to go through different characters. I probably, I'll pull some different stories out about some guys that you probably know in the Bible, some of them that you may never have heard of before. Today's one of those days where you might not have heard of this dude before. His name is Benaiah. And, uh, he's not, you know, he's not up there like famous, like Noah or King David or anything like that. But this dude's name is Benaiah. And this dude was a fierce, fierce, fierce warrior. He kicked a lot of butt. Like if you read the Bible, you can probably read through the whole stories and miss what Benaiah does. But we're going to read about him here in second Samuel 23 verses 20 and 21. I said, there was also Benaiah son of whatever, a valiant warrior from from Kabzil. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. That's all day tough right there. On a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and he killed it. It's kind of snowy out there. I about busted my butt on the way to the vehicle this morning. That. Now, notice who Heath really is preaching about. He's preaching about himself. By the way, it's uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. Okay, He was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Okay, This is all that Scripture really tells us about him. Um, and he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptians' hands and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Now, you'll notice something here. This portion of Scripture, this is historical narrative. Okay, In this section, though, okay, we aren't told by God that we need to be like Benaiah. We're not told that at all. We're told what Benaiah did, how he was a valiant, mighty man of valor in David's army, right? But nowhere in Scripture does it say, and you therefore must be like Benaiah and strike down a lion or anything like that, okay? Now, a few weeks ago, we did an episode entitled, you know, How to Narsajit Any Passages of Scripture. I did a segment on that. Okay, what you're going to hear um, <clears throat> Heath Mooneyhan do here with this text is classic narcissistic eisegesis. The first thing you got to do then is you take this historical narrative that tells God reveals to us what this man did. Okay, the exploits of his life. He's going to then allegorize it. So we're going to take a literal historical narrative. And we're going to turn it into fairy tale, okay, by turning it into allegory. And then we're going to pick out key elements, you know, because remember, when you narcissize a passage and you make it about you, what you do is you identify the hero. So the hero is Benaiah. You identify the villain. The villain would be the lion, okay? And then the lion then represents anything in your life that's keeping you from greatness or fulfilling your purpose or anything like that, okay? So then... The admonition then goes like this. What are the lions in your life that are keeping you from being great like Benaiah was great or something like that? Okay, now are we talking about real lions then? No, we're not talking about real lions. 
Okay, so then the lions would be described, well, credit card debt, a bad relationship, maybe a blogger, a critic, um, a, a, a bad job that you're not happy with. Those become lions. And so you got to slay those lions on your snowy days, just like Benaiah did. And the answer is no, you don't, because you ain't Benaiah, you are you. And this lion, it wasn't an allegorical, metaphorical lion, and it is not some allegory about your life, okay? You're completely missing the whole point of the story, period. And it's tough to find out really what this, you know, we're not admonished to be like him. We know very little about him, okay? Jesus never said, and you need to be like Benaiah, or you get what I'm saying here. But we continue with this attempt at a sermon. Here we go. That's, it's crazy to chase a lion on a snowy day. Once, armed only with a club, he killed a great Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Like UFC fighters ain't got nothing on this dude. This guy. Oh, man. Yeah, Heath Mooneyhan has something in common with Perry Noble. Sounds like a guy who washed out of stand-up comedy. Yeah, this is a frustrated stand-up comic who who's who's you know basically living his dream of being a stand-up com you know comedian and having an audience laughing at his jokes because he's writing his own. Um, yeah, this it, this isn't biblical teaching either. Yeah, I had a club, and so you got this Egyptian champion warrior out there, and he's got a spear. And common sense tells me that, like, if I've got a spear and you got a club, I'm taking you out first because I'm chucking my spear at you. But this guy grabs it from his hand. How embarrassing to get killed by your own spear. But that's how tough Beniah was. Here's some things that you don't may not have known about Beniah. Uh, King David has these uh, group of elite people called his mighty men. Beniah was one of King David's mighty men. He, uh, he, he was the captain of King David's bodyguards. And actually, he gets elevated to this position because on a snowy day, he went down to a pit and killed a lion. Like, whenever, you've, whenever you do that in your life, your reputation precedes you. People understand. Do not mess with Benaiah. That sucker will jack you up. But he, like, out of all of King David's bodyguards, he was the captain of them. And then whenever King David's son takes the throne, Solomon... He, uh, Benaiah actually becomes the commander of the Israeli army. Benaiah is not to be messed with. But I want to focus on that one part of scripture right there. Another time on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. My imagination runs wild with that. Like how in the, what happened? And that's the problem. You're not supposed to be preaching from your imagination. What happened? Because I, I don't understand if he was ordered, like somebody dared him. Like, I can't imagine too many instances where I would see a lion and it was in a, ran down into a pit. And I thought, I'm going to go chase that sucker down and whoop it. Like, I, I don't know if somebody ordered him to do that. I don't know if he just shared my, the same hatred I have for cats. It could be, maybe he's just straight up cat killer, man. I can relate with Benaiah. But what in the world would cause a man to, to do something so abnormal? Like normal people don't chase lions. Can we agree on that? Like that's a bizarre story. 
here's what I want to ask you in your life. What lion do you need to chase? Told ya. <laughs> yeah, this is classical twisting of scripture. It's called narcissistic eisegesis. By the way, eisegesis, E-I-S-E-G-I-E-O-E. I can't spell it off the top of my head. But it means to read into scripture things that are not there. And in this particular case, since it's narcissistic eisegesis, also known as narcissus, it's reading yourself, your love for yourself, into the biblical texts. Okay? You're not in here. The story isn't about you, nor is it about the lions in your life. To twist this and the story and make it about you and so some allegorical, metaphorical lions in your life is to totally miss the whole point. What do you need to go after in your life that doesn't make any sort of sense to anybody else? Heretics. What is God calling you to do? What are the fights in your life that you have got to pick? Uh, fights with people like Heath Mooneyhan who are twisting God's word. He must be the lion in my life. And you've got to go after, and that nobody else is ever, maybe ever, going to understand. But you have got to identify what those fights are. Because I, I, uh, I think about a lot that's went on in my life. I talk with different people around here, but... Yeah, please tell us more about you. I can hardly wait. It always comes back to kind of like, I just kind of got my own experiences that I've been through, lived through. Um, Why don't you share some of them during sermon time, during the time you're supposed to be actually preaching God's word? Whether I was young or older and stupid or married and stupid and married and smart, we've got these life experiences. And I remember along the way that, that there's... All these situations that come up where, while I can't comprehend chasing a lion into a pit, especially on a snowy day, I've had my own lions that I've had to chase that everybody else has, has looked at on the... No, they're not really lions at all. Beniah actually, um, Beniah, he, he, he dealt with a real lion. The outside looking in going, are you a flipping idiot? If you listen, let me just tell you this. If you don't have people in your life calling you an idiot from time to time, well, some of you just are idiots and you just that's kind of like procedure name instead of mister, it's like idiot. And uh but for chasing wild things, I mean, cuz God has put in has put dreams and visions and gifts and God has put dreams and visions in your heart. No, he hasn't. What are you talking about? Talents in your life. What's the, what's the lion that's keeping you from God's best in your life? What uh, Heretics like you. What's, if God has gifted you with some talents and you're not using them because... You're, yeah, I've been given the gift of biblical discernment. You're scared. There's something that God wants done... That's not getting done because you're scared or you're prideful. Here's what I've learned about dudes. Dudes are the most prideful creatures on the planet. I mean, we are insanely prideful. And a lot of people will, you know, a lot of guys will sit back and say, I'm not prideful. I completely agree. You're actually proving that point by making this story about you.
prideful. That's just your pride telling you you're not prideful. Not me. They can sit there. We have guys in this church that's literally been here for like years. Same old walk in, week in, week out, whine about the same crap in their life. Pastor, pray for me. I ain't praying for you another flipping minute. You, sir, are an idiot. Yeah, that's exactly the way Jesus would preach, isn't it? Like, not even close. Yeah, there you go. Go to church and get chewed out by your pastor. Because you're a, well, uh, scared. And I will help you get over that. But until you put one foot in front of the other, I ain't helping you anymore. Some of you guys out there. It's like as if Heath Mooneyhan has gone to the Perry Noble School of Bedside Manners for Pastors. Isn't it great? There's guys that won't even provide for their families. I'm serious. Like, we've got a wonderful pastoral care team here for a reason to keep me away from you. (laughs) They'll call me up sometimes and be like, hey, man, I got this dude in here. He's like needing this, needing that, needing the other. I'm like, isn't that the same dude that was like there a couple weeks ago needing this, that, and the other? Yeah. Why hadn't he? What's going on now? I don't know, man. He claims he can't get a job and all this. I was like, but he's got a wife and he's got kids. He's got all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But he, he claims that he just can't find a job. Hey, man, if a man won't work, he ain't going to eat. You tell him to go across the street to McDonald's. They will give him a stinking job. Why is it? Why can't he work? Why can't a man go out there and get a job and provide for his family? Because he's lazy. Because he's prideful. Man, you can get pissed at me all you want. You're going to fi- figure it out real quick. I don't care. I don't care. Here's the deal. God is calling you to be a warrior. God is calling you to be a mighty man of God. And you can't do it all limp and pacified, sitting back there acting like somebody else needs to take care of you. You need to buck up. And you need to be a man, and you need to take care of your responsibilities. You need to take care of your family. You need to love your wife. You need to raise your kids. Don't depend on the schools to raise your kids. Kate, now this is this is like a browbeating type uh, smackdown thing going on here. Um, <clears throat> now, I don't know if this actually fits into a valid use of God's law. Now, some of the things he's mentioning here truly are sins. And yes, people by their pastor, need to have their sins called out. They need to be called out for their sins and confronted with their sins. So he's apparently confronting them with their sins. What's the solution then? Just, well, as he said, buck up and be a man? How about repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ? Those are two completely different things altogether. You raise your kids. There is no room for failure in these areas. And I get really passionate when I come talking about men because here, here's what happens is whenever men's lives change, everything changes. And it's a hard, hard road for that to happen. And it's a long road sometimes for that to happen. But if you'll commit to the process and you'll let some other dudes get up in your face and say, quit being a punk. You can do this. You know what? We will knock you around a little bit. Not a whole lot. Not like where charges get pressed, but almost. Say, well, guys don't like that. Yeah, they do. They are lined up at the recruiter's office for to sign up for the military for other dudes to yell at them. I'm doing it for free. <laughs> Get off your butt. Be a man. 
Be a Spartan. Be a war- Spartan. This is why we picked this name. Like, I love the, the, the men of Sparta. They not, had nothing to do with Christianity. But these guys carried themselves well. The, the process, it's a pretty gruesome process. Basically, whenever a young boy is born, it, their moms would like bathe them in wine to see if they can handle it. And if, the, if a boy was considered to be small and puny and kind of wimpy and stuff like that, they would literally take him to the edge of the cliff and throw him off. And you like this. That's a good thing? Yeah, that's called murder. Infanticide. Okay, all right. If you, if you, that's what you like. Sure, go ahead and preach that rather than preaching what God's word says. That's murder. That's jacked up, all right? So that's not why we named the series Sparta, all right? Spartan. <laughs> but they took the best of the best and they trained these men from very young ages. And whenever the, the man became 20 years old, he could become a full-blown Spartan. And these guys, they didn't talk much. They could, whenever they were being raised, they, they would take beatings for discipline and they weren't allowed to make a sound. There's something about a man that can sit there and, and not only take a beating for himself, but for his family, for his brother, for his neighbor, for his community, for his country, for his God, and not whine about it. I understand a lot of bad things happen to a lot of us, a lot of you guys. We have a choice to make in life. Life is all about free will and choices. You have this choice to keep the perspective that you have. Some of you got this perspective of poor, poor me. And I I don't know everybody's story, and I'm not making a lie to your story. Some of you got some horrific stories out there, and I feel for you. But to let that stuff define you, to let those beatings in life cause you to sit there and cry about it forever and ever and ever and say, well, I can't move forward in life because of somebody else, of what they did to me, how my dad treated me, how my mom treated me, how my pastor, this guy that did me wrong. See, some of you. So this is the Spartan version of Joel Osteen and Rick Warren's message. Got it. Okay. You're in here and you come from other church because you're mad at some other pastor because they did you wrong. Cry about it somewhere else. Bad things happen. But it's what you do whenever you get up in the morning and you put one foot in front of the other. Are you going to stand there and be paralyzed with fear? You've got to get over these fears. You have got to, the situation could look impossible. You've got to look at the situation no matter how bizarre it is. Notice that when. Uh... Paul admonished Timothy regarding fear that he preached the gospel to him. Hmm, yeah, that seems to be missing from Heath's brow-beating message. Manly man, those Spartans, by the way, they aren't really mentioned in Scripture. And say, I'm going to chase a lion into a pit. I'm going to kill that sucker. If for no other reason, because everybody else says it can't be done. I'm going to do it. And if the lion kills you, because you can roll through all these situations in your head, the lion kills you, so what? I'd rather die trying to attempt something in my life than to lay back and be a wimp and die on nothing. Yeah. Wow, yeah. This this would be a great speech for the military, yeah. 
Not for a Christian church, though. Let your situation change because so many of you have been trying to do this whole God thing, this whole life thing on your own for so long. How's that working out for you? I mean, it's a new year. New year, new you, right? Why don't you mean that this time? How come 2013, how come it can't be different? Every year you you get up and you say these things. Then by Valentine's Day, you forgot all about it. And you go back to, yep, I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? Remember that song, you 90s babies? All right. But you have got to get up. You've got to be a man about this. Chasing lions. What do, what lion do you need to chase? There's two things, that, two thoughts that you need. To- yeah, I don't need to chase any lions. Sorry, I'm just not into chasing lions. I'm not trained with exotic animals. Think about here. Lion chasers know that the bigger their God is, the smaller the lion becomes. Lion chasers just know. <laughs> really? Is that what they know? Um, really? What Bible verse says that again? Know that. That the bigger that their God is, the smaller that their lions become. I, uh, I used to have a PhD in whining. I could whine about anything, man. I'd be one of these, and it still crept up from time to time. I remember planning this church and uh, four years ago, and it was crazy, and, and there was situations going on like, man, I remember like some weeks, this is no joke. We still got all the, the giving records from them. There'd be like 50 people. I remember like $600 in the offering and like our, our rent on the place is thousands and stuff like that. And I remember just, ah, oh, this ain't worth it. It ain't, we ain't going to make it, all this stuff. So I, I remember calling one of my overseers one day. And I go, man, look, man, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think we're going to be able to keep the doors open another week. I think we're just going to cut our losses here and go home. Mm, but did you become a lion chaser? The guy, I'll never forget what he said to me. Quit being a puss. <laughs> really? You think this is appropriate for a sermon from a Christian pastor? Huh. You thought I was going to say something real spiritual, didn't you? <laughs> so I can't believe it. that happened. I didn't say it. This dude did. All right. I always remember that. He said, you thought this was going to be easy, didn't you? See, because it's easy for you to to declare war on a lion. Now, when that sucker takes a swipe at you, and you realize that you're in a fight with a flipping lion, (laughs) crap has a way of getting real, like fast. (laughs) And, And... And and you're going, wow, this is out of control. And what did I do? Maybe I made a mistake. See, because here's what's going to happen. Because hopefully some of you guys are going to declare war on your marriage. Because Satan's taken over. Some of you are going to finally declare war on your finances. Because you're a wreck. Some of you are finally going to declare war on... So I'm going to declare war on my marriage and then declare war on my finances. Hmm. Wouldn't it be the things attacking my marriage or the things that, you know, that are causing my finances to be screwy that I should be attacking? (laughs) You can't even get the metaphor right. (sighs) Parenting your children. 
because they are running crazy and you're about to lose your stinking mind. So declare war on your lion children. Got it. Some of you are finally going to grab a hold of this Jesus as your own. And whenever you, you do these things and you step out there in faith, it's going to get hard. It's going to get scary. And you're going to think, what the heck did I do? What have I gotten myself into? And you're going to think about quitting. And you do not post this on Facebook, but remember my words here. <laughs> so what would Pastor He say to me? I'd say, don't be a puss. You're in for a fight. I'm dead serious. If you want nice little message, go somewhere else, whatever. If you want to get right, you want to realize what you're up against, because I'm sick and tired of watching your marriages fail. I'm sick and tired of you raising these punks that are probably going to grow up to rob me. I'm sick and tired of people claiming the name of Christ. And living like they don't give a rip in the world about them. And lumping themselves in the same category as me as a Christian. Now notice what he's doing here. He's basically presenting himself as the guy who's going to talk straight for you. He's going to give you the tough talk that none of those, those well, wimpy pastors are going to do. He's going to tell it to you straight. But what is all of this? Law, law. And more law. But is it a valid use of the law? Well, he's confronting them with their sin. Okay. But remember, if the purpose of the law, second use, is to show us our sin, then it must show us then our need for a Savior. The solution has to be our crucified and risen Savior. He's not preaching third use in the sense that these are the good works and God's good law shows us then how to do a good, what it is God's will for us to do is what a good work is. No, he's browbeating these people because you're not doing it right. And I'm going to teach it to you straight. I'm going to give you the, the I'm going to give it to you straight up. 140 proof is, is like, you know, the, 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 he thinks this is the sermon version of moonshine, you know, the stuff that'll, you know, turn you into a fire breather. But all this is, is law. If he doesn't preach Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution to this, because the people he's preaching to, he's already made clear, are guilty of breaking these laws, right? They're guilty of not doing these things. That means they need to be brought to repentance and faith and, and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins for not measuring up. See if he does it. It ain't happening anymore. I'm tired of that. Not taking care of their neighbors, taking care of their families, not, not, not giving, not serving, not showing the love of Christ, compassion. That's what really gets all up in my crawl for you hillbillies. Do you preach in overalls? Just breathe. I ain't mad at you. This is this is nice, Heath. This is Heath that's been through therapy. I'm just saying, it's wake up time. 
It is wake up time. But here's the deal. Whenever you, whenever you look at your situation and you realize that you're in a pit with a lion and this sucker is about ready to kill you. Whenever you keep your eye focused on the lion. I've never been in a pit with a lion. Neither have you, especially on a snowy day. Your God seems real tiny. You're like, oh, God, save me, whatever. You can, isn't it funny how you can trust God to save your life through salvation with your eternity, but you can't trust him with your finances? can't trust him with your, your marriage? By the way, since he's a seeker-driven pastor, you know what that means? That's code talk. Can't trust him with your finances means you need to tithe. Can't trust him with your kids. Can't trust him with your job. Can't trust him with your future. It gets bizarre, doesn't it? That's because we keep our eyes focused on the line instead of our God. Because whenever we get our eyes on our God and we realize how big he is, these lines aren't nothing. The bigger that your God is, the smaller your lines become. Boy, it sure does sound biblical because he read the story of Benaiah, didn't he? None of this is in that story at all. He's not actually teaching biblical doctrine. Uh, this was, you ever heard about Daniel in the lion's den? Yes, more lions. Well, here's, uh, here's what happened. There was a, a king and... Now notice he's not saying, open your Bible to Daniel chapter whatever. Red flag. He got tricked into ordering that everybody that prays to God is going to get thrown into a, a, the lion's den and going to get eaten by the lion. And so um, Daniel just stands up and says, I'm not going to stop praying to my God. I'm just not going to do it. And so by the order of the king, and apparently he didn't know he was doing this, and so the king felt really bad about it, but they threw Daniel into a lion's den, and the next day here the, uh, the king comes and checks in on Daniel. This is found in Daniel chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lion? So basically he's calling, like, Daniel, I don't even know if you're alive. You're supposed to be dead, but I'm just checking because I know about the God that you serve. And the God that you serve and you called out to and you prayed to, I just want to know if he was able to save you, please answer me. Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they they would not hurt me. For I've been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you either, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. This, uh, the, the king had this different perspective. Like, like a lot of you guys have this different perspective of my God. Like you can look at other people who, who serve God faithfully. And you sit there and you get this idea of God. And you, you, you got this like, oh yeah, I, I've, I belong to Jesus. I'm a Christian because you know like 80% of Americans or however many claim that they're Christians. Whatever. Let's read the story. He was doing, I mean, I was sitting here thinking, man, he might actually steer into this, like, you know, accidentally actually do it right. He was so close. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one. 
to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, Jesus himself makes it clear. Scripture, all of it, is about him. It is about Jesus. Go and read the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus from the Gospel of Luke. Okay, Jesus opens up the Scripture and, and reveals to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus all of the passages that are about him. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, chastises the Pharisees and says, and says to them, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, yet that they are the very scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus himself says the scriptures testify about him. This story is a type and a shadow of Christ. Daniel here is, in a sense, playing the role of Christ. Okay, now, what I mean by that is this. He believes in Christ. He trusts Christ because he trusts in the one true God who would later then be born of the Virgin Mary and suffer under Pontius Pilate. So we see in Daniel traits and characteristics that are uncannily similar to Jesus. Okay, here in the story, Daniel chapter 6, starting, out, starting off, here we have Daniel doing very well. He's faithful and does good. And then these, you know, and by the way, where is he? He's in exile. He is one of the exiles of Judah who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and brought, literally uprooted from Judah and brought to Babylon. Here he is in Babylon, okay? And he believes in the one true God, even though he is suffering loss and is one of the remnants of, of God's judgment, right? Okay, so here he is, and he still has faith in the one true God. And God is with him, and God is blessing him, and he is doing great, right? And these officials of Babylon, they are jealous. They can't stand this guy, okay? And they know they can't trip him up because there's no fault found in him. Who does that sound like? You know who it sounds like? It sounds just like Jesus. When you read the Gospels over and again, Jesus, he's healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, giving the ability to walk to those who are lame. He's casting out demons forgiving sins, doing these amazing things, right? And Jesus, after healing people, the, the Pharisees are so upset and jealous and can't stand him, they want him dead. That's the same thing we see going on here. So what we see in the Old Testament as type 
and shadow, well, is fulfilled in the one who is casting the shadow, Jesus himself. So as we read the story, we see in here a similar set of themes that run in Jesus' own life. But this isn't a parable in the sense that it's a myth or whatever. This happened in real history, right? Okay, verse 5. So then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to king, the king and said to him, O king Darius, may you live forever. And all of these high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever may petition makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall he be cast into the den of lions. What does this sound like? Hmm. The themes here, this sounds so remarkably similar to the story we read of the Jewish officials who brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate to have him crucified. The parallels are uncanny. Daniel, in this story, is, well, he's a type. He's a shadow foreshadowing Jesus himself. The story that we hear sounds a lot like, and it's not a mistake, sounds a lot like, and it's not a coincidence, sounds a lot like the the very thing that Jesus went through when he was put on trial and brought before Pontius Pilate. Right? So an injunction, a petition, that anybody who prays to any other god for 30 days except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper room, an upper chamber toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. And these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except for to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den of lions, right? King answered and said, This thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and sent, set his mind to deliver Daniel. I'm going to pause there. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. 
But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd anyone, any prisoner whom they wanted. And then they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered Pilate, said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Beside, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, then, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They said, all of them said, let him be crucified. And he said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You see the parallels? They're uncanny, aren't they? Exactly. This story about Daniel isn't really about Daniel. It really ultimately points us to Christ. The circumstances are similar, not coincidentally, but by the very providence of God. Because we can see in here the same themes, the same jealousy, the same death sentence, and the same death and resurrection too. Watch what happens. Okay, back to Daniel chapter 6, verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians, and that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. What does that sound like? It should sound exactly like Jesus' tomb. Exactly, right? stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So in the, this is a death, and now we're going to see a resurrection. Then at, day, at, the, at daybreak, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and as he came near to the den... Where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, and the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? 
Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Notice the theme. Death, resurrection, blamelessness, right? Innocence, right? Okay? He's raised again to life because he's innocent. Notice the tomb that was rolled over. This, this, I mean, you couldn't find a more clear foreshadowing of Christ's, Christ's own trial and death and resurrection than this, right? But see, just like the lions couldn't touch Daniel, death could not touch Jesus and couldn't hold him, right? So then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And then the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all of the earth. Here's what he wrote. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all of my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. What a fantastic story. What an amazing story. What an amazing story because you know why? Because only God can write history like this that points us and foreshadows his own history, his own trial before Pontius Pilate, the own, his own mistrial and injustice that was done to him, the innocent one of God, who was sent to death, had a stone rolled over his lion's den, right? And was set free by the command of God the Father. Because he is the living God. Ugh, great story. Good stuff. Deep themes. Amazing foreshadows of Christ. Because all of this is about Christ. And what's Heath Mooneyhan preaching about? I have no idea. But it sure does sound like himself. Whatever most people in this room are claiming that they're Christians and stuff like that. But really, if you're really honest, you got this perception about somebody else's God. You're like, oh man, how you're always on the outside looking in and you, you always go up to other people. How did that happen? You know, whenever you see the miraculous happen in their life or things are going well for them, and whenever they testify that their God's good to them and it was miraculous, you're you're on the outside looking in going, huh, for real? I thought surely you'd die. I, I'm just, you're curious. Like you have this idea of God, but you don't really own God for yourself. You don't really own this Jesus for yourself. You're just, you look at other people's gods and you, and you go, 
hey, how's that Jesus thing working out for you? And so you'll start answer, you'll start asking questions, but you don't want people to find out that you're not a Christian. So you use Christianese to ask the questions. And so yeah, it's a real language. <laughs> oh, hallelujah, brother. And, you know, whatever. They'll start saying brothers. You start calling each other brothers and sisters and stuff like that. And I stop it whenever it gets to greeting each other with a holy kiss. But um, <laughs> you get curious because you've got this idea of God. Because we do live in southwest Missouri, or at least you attend church here. And everybody here was just came out of the womb a Christian, right? There's a church on every corner in this stinking town. Everybody's a Christian, but few people own Christ. So few, very few people own this Jesus thing. And so a lot of people live on the outside looking in saying, what about your God? I wonder about this Jesus. Is, can he do miraculous things? Are, are other people looking into your life wondering, how in the world is this happening in your life? I know for a lot of people that have surrendered to Jesus Christ and have subjected themselves to the process of salvation through through him and this purification and sanctification and this blessing that he's got on your guys' lives, other people can look in at your life and go, how in the world is that happening? And you say, you know, it's like me a lot of times. I say, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Because you want what other people's got, especially when it comes to God, but very few are willing to pay what other people have paid or do what other people have done. So the first thing that lion chasers know that the bigger their God is, the smaller lion becomes. The second thing that lion chasers know is that playing it safe is extremely risky. Lion chasers know that playing it safe is extremely risky. Hebrews eleven six and it says it's impossible to please God without faith. Notice what he just did there. So if you're not living life riskily, you're not pleasing God because you have to live your life in such a way that it takes faith to live it. That's not what's being referred to in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's saving faith. What is faith? What is faith? Faith is seeing a lion. And don't get all weird and crazy on me and say, well, Pastor, don't we go out and chase lions? I'll read about you in the obituaries, all right? God didn't call you to do that. You're dead. Um, you just contradicted yourself. Yeah, Benaiah chased a real one. So if you're going to make the parallel between me and Benaiah, that means I have to chase a real lion because he did. And you just said if they did that, they'd be dead, proving that you're mishandling God's word. You said it yourself. But you see a line, whatever that is, whatever your line is in your life. And there is no possible way. It's, your situation is dead. Your situation seems impossible. And it's chasing after that line anyways. And you are determined you're going to break through. Some of you went on this journey. You're like, oh, I felt like God was calling me to do this. And maybe it was, maybe it was to serve. Maybe it was to be a stay-at-home mom. But we live in a society, right, where everybody's got to work. 
But maybe God's calling you to stay at home with your kids. And it seems so scary. How are we going to make it? What are we going to do? It's scary. It's scary. People come in and ask me for my advice all the time. I said, what do you, what do you think? I said, you might go bankrupt. You might be homeless. Do it anyways. If you feel like God's calling you to do it, do it. Chase that lion. I, don't listen to what I got to say. You got to have faith because without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's not what that text means. Faith to be a stay-at-home. It's not what it's referring to. It's saving faith in Christ, trusting in him. And as Christians, we should want to please God. Yeah, so that means you got to live recklessly. Yeah, because if you're not living recklessly because God putting things on your heart, well, then God's mad at you and you're not pleasing him. Complete misreading and twisting of that text. He has put desires and dreams and, and talents and gifts in our lives and in our hearts. For us, subjective, subjective, subjective. What verse says this, Heath? For us to go out and change this world. What verse says that we need to go out and change the world? I'm not familiar with that verse. And so many of you are sitting back, playing it safe. I've got a guy in this church that tells me, I'm going to go out and plant a church. I'm like, good luck. Stinks. It's hard. He's going to make it. He is going to make it. I've tried to talk him out of it. I tried to say, that thing will kill you. You and your wife, you're going to be sleeping under the freeway. It's not going to work. I remember people saying the exact same thing to me, though. I remember. Here's the deal. Long, once upon a time, I wasn't a pastor. A lot of you that are new, you're like, no kidding. (laughs) Still not much of one, all right? Whatever. I was working a decent job, had my own business. Things were going great. Can I just tell you, like, one day, God told me to quit it all. Stop what you're doing. I was in a groove, man. You ever, you ever just been in that sweet spot in life where it seems like you're putting the bat on the ball every time you get up to the plate? I was in that groove. Things were working out. I had my, my, we had two babies at the time. Elijah was just born. Had a brand new house. Everything was working out great. We weren't struggling. Making lots of money, working like a dog, whatever. God told me, I want you to quit. I want you to stop this. Based upon your inability to rightly handle God's word, I'm 100% convinced that was not God telling you that. I want to tell a story through you. He says, come, on me, come with me on this journey. We're going to go reach people. Can I just tell you, I had no church background, really, to speak of. I wasn't raising, I wasn't a choir boy, I wasn't any of that stuff. Haven't been to seminary, haven't studied the biblical languages, don't, haven't taken hermeneutics 101, this all shows. It wasn't God who told you to plant this church and become a pastor. And so I went home and me and my wife talked about it. And, and so we sold everything. 
like lock, stock, and barrel. The vehicles, the house, the businesses, everything. And can I tell you, it doesn't sound real normal. Like here's how some of my conversations would go with people. Be like, yeah, God told me to sell all this and he's calling me into full-time ministry. Really? (laughs) Tell me another. Scripture says for those pastors who want to be pastors, study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment who who can rightly handle the word of truth. You haven't done that. You're not qualified to be a pastor. Because one of the qualifications is that you are able to teach sound doctrine and refute and rebuke those who contradict it. You contradict sound doctrine practically with every sermon that you preach, proving that you are not called by God to be a pastor. This is objective, not subjective. You're crazy, you crack-smoking idiot. You're Heath. We know Heath. Come on, man. That ain't right. I even got ridiculed by other people for not taking care of my family. You're quitting quitting your good job and all this stuff. I said, I know it sounds crazy, but whenever God told me to do this, I, I was scared. Let me tell you, to this day, I'm still scared. I'm still scared. But I remember what it was like. It was a rough winter. Uh, I would love to tell you that everything just worked out great. Like, listen, we struggled You know what it feels like working three or four jobs and not being able to still at the end of the week to put diapers on your own son? Yeah. Submitted to the process though. You know what we never did? We never gave up. We continued. Some of you right now, you need to commit to tithing because there's... Yeah, I saw this one coming a mile away. Uh, Nowhere in the New Testament are Christians told to tithe. It's an Old Testament civil law, not a law that carries over into the New Testament. Blessings and security in that. There's, that's a covenant between you and God. We never stop tithing through this process. And let me tell you something. That's scary. Whenever like you have this choice to make, diapers or tithe. You give God what's his. Because you know what faith is? Faith is saying that, God, I will live better with 90% blessed than 100% not. That takes faith. It was a scary ride. And so I went to be this youth pastor up in somewhere up north dealing with hoodlums. It was awesome, and I loved these kids, and everything was going great. Got paid peanuts. You know, it was like, it sounded great. Like we could live off of this money until you go up there and it's a different housing market. And, and like a little shack costs you $800 a month and the electric bills are running you four or $500 a month, which is automatically way more than what they're paying me a month. It was scary. And then, then when we moved back down here and, and I remember that time, like I'm not, a, I wasn't like a real big fan of Joplin, just to be really honest. I remember driving down 7th Street. I remember coming up to the downtown area, and I remember my heart breaking. And I'm crying like a baby, and then my wife's crying. We're like, what the heck's wrong with this? We're emotional. I'm like, did you slip some sort of hormones into my cereal? Or, and it happens. Uh, and God broke our heart for this town. 
And God called us to plant a church here. And I'm like, plant a church? I'm, I'm like a youth pastor. Not even a good one. Subpar youth pastor. God's calling us to plant a church in this town. I don't know the first thing about planting a church. I don't know the first thing about pastoring. What's, what in the world's going to happen? Well, I was scared. I was like, nobody's even going to show up. So I just called a few guys. I thought maybe they'll show up. And they did. Like a bunch of people showed up. And then they heard what I was doing. And most of them left. <laughs> a few of them stuck around. They're still here to this day. And we planted a stinking church. And it was hard. It was hard. This morning... I was scared to death. Every time before I speak, I still get scared. I'm not worthy to do this. I'm not qualified to do this. I agree with the second one. Worthiness has nothing to do with it. I'm not educated to do this. True again. Somebody didn't hire me to do this. I didn't get anybody's approval to do this. And I tremble at the word of God. No, you don't, because you don't rightly handle it. There's parts of the Bible that says he's going to judge those who teach his word more harshly. You should listen to those passages. I'm like, crap. (laughs) I still get scared. I was scared this morning. But there's something that happens. Here's what happens whenever you just get into that mode. You got to step out of who you are. And whenever you take that step of faith, you're stepping into the anointing that God has on your life for that season. There's no passage in the Bible that says this. And what he's called you to. And I get up here every week and I pray, God, use what I say to reach people for your glory. Expand your kingdom. Your- How's that going to happen when you twist and mangle and don't even know that all the passages in Scripture are about Christ? Your will be done. And God does crazy things. And what scares me equally as much as that is what happened if I'd have got scared and didn't take that step of faith. There wouldn't be people believing your false teaching. Think about the hundreds and thousands of people that's come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Really, how is that possible? But they're not being fed sound doctrine and you don't rightly handle God's word. What does God want to do through you? Don't sit there and say it sounds small and insignificant. Believe me, whenever I thought he was calling me to plant this church, I'm like, if five people show up, it'll be a good day. I honestly thought that last night about today. Because it was snowing and ice. I was like, if five people show up, I'll still preach your word, God. I don't care. Let's go do it. What line is God calling you to chase? Let's pray. He's not, and no, we're not going to let you pray. So there you go. Another complete botching of God's word. And when you compare it to what the passage is really about, Christ, not you, not me, all of a sudden it makes sense as to why he's not handling God's word and he's completely oblivious to what it's about. That is, well, to be a deluded narcissist. That's what scripture shows us. What scripture warns us about. That's what it sounds like when it's being preached from the pulpit. Deluded narcissism. Sad. But the state of the church currently, because our culture is the same way too. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. 
Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ as a vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.